There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 101. Today on the show, we're joined by Jeff Spazito to discuss the newly launched and very exciting new organization, 2% for Conservation. All right, so before we kick off the show, I do need to ask you a favor. Please bear with us through the first 10 minutes of this episode as we had some serious technical difficulties trying to record our intro segment and literally record it three or four times over the past two days and every single time we had these issues with sound quality. We're still trying to figure out what's going on, but for this week, I had to decide either to scrap this whole intro segment or leave it in with some poor audio sections scattered throughout. So I decided to do that as I thought you'd probably still enjoy getting to hear these stories despite the few glitches. So thanks for your understanding, and now to the show. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today we've got a great show for you as we're joined by Jeff Spazito, the founder of the brand new and very exciting 2% for Conservation a conservation organization that I think has the potential to make a very big difference in the hunting and fishing world. And I'm stoked that Jeff's going to be joining us today to talk about this new organization, what inspired him to dive into this project, what all goes into starting a conservation organization, and how all of us hunters can get more involved in taking up this type of cause in our own lives. But before we get to all of that, Dan and I do have some exciting updates from the field to share. We have been doing a little turkey hunting, right, Dan? That's a fact, Jack. And we've actually done a half decent job of it. Hey, I can't complain. I, uh, you killed, what you, did you get one or two? I got one. I, I, you can only kill one here in Michigan, but I can very, I can very briefly, quickly give you my overview. I had five really tough days of hunting in Michigan where the birds weren't talking or I was really bad at calling or something went wrong in the first five days and just couldn't quite make it happen. I was out there with a bow trying, you know, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, I thought I'd try to up the challenge factor. So I took my bow out and was waiting for a big mature bird and things just didn't quite 
go all the way I don't want. So then Saturday came around, and I was getting a little nervous because my dad's coming in a couple days to hunt, and I was only going to have a few more days to hunt after that. So I figured if, if I don't get something in the freezer now, I might not get a bird at all. So I took the gun out Saturday morning. I changed up my strategy, went to a different spot in the farm, and um, long story short, I ended up killing a really nice gobbler uh, I don't know, a couple hours after daylight. So it was one of those hunts where it was one of those days, really, where the, everything was going right. The two days before, the birds were silent. Nothing was going. But this day, everything was talking. They were responding to the calls and uh, put one on the ground. So that was my that was my turkey hunt. I got a Michigan bird. Now in a week, week and a half, I'm going to Ohio. But uh, you, my friend, you laid uh, or were part of laying two, two down, right? Right, right. Uh, let's see. So typically what happens is I've been hunting with my wife for five years. Uh, we, do, we do this thing, tradition. We, we call it turkey camp, and it's where me and my wife and my stepdad uh, go hunting, and my mom kind of gets the raw end of the deal. She gets to watch the kids, So, um, which she loves. She does her grandma thing, but she watched the kids while uh, Sarah and I went hunting, and, and my stepdad – okay, here's how my stepdad hunts. He goes into the blind – before light and he sits in the blind all day long that's that's how he i can't do that there it would be impossible there would have to be like a flat screen tv in there for me to do that (laughs) but we me and my wife do a little bit more run and gun and although luckily this year we really didn't have to um so thursday i head out of work and i i leave early set up a blind in a pasture starts raining i drive around the section i see like 25 to 30 birds um i saw about seven to ten shouting toms and the rest were hens uh so i knew that there were turkeys in the area and that made me really excited uh, fast forward to friday morning we get into the stand a little bit early uh, so we had to fight some cattle getting in and we thought the cattle had left and the turkeys were responding like every time I touched my call, they were gobbling. And even when I, I, there was a period of time where I was just not even calling and they were going bananas in the timber. <laughs> so my blind was set up in the middle of a, a cattle pasture under a big old oak tree. And uh, the birds were in the timber line about 250 yards away. They started gobbling. I was calling. They came in. They saw my decoys. This is the abbreviated version. And, uh, they, they, they held up Well, I looked behind me and the cattle had worked their way back into the area and they were pretty spooked or pretty hesitant of coming closer to the decoys. And they headed down this valley and up the other side and went into a different part of the pasture. Well, they were gobbling the whole time. So I knew where they were at. My wife and me made a stalk on them. I got busted by a hen. They flew away. Fast forward. Then instead of going, I'm going back out. I, I don't know. This year, I was just kind of in it up to do what my wife was ready to do. Because I knew that we were going to have great weather the entire morning, which means, or the entire weekend, which means that they were responding and they were going to respond. So I didn't go back out. Uh, we went, went and tried another little piece of property back at the house, 11, and then. We did what my wife wanted to do, which was go to the winery, and I tasted some local wines, which were delicious. 
And uh, fast forward to Saturday morning, and I'm not joking you, this is exactly how it went. Walk the line, wait 20 minutes, heard the first gobbles at about quarter to six. Birds flew down at about six, and between six and 6.05, my wife shot the turkey. So it was it the a tom three jakes and a hen all flew out of the tree within 20 yards uh the jakes and the tom started strutting towards the decoys they stepped out behind this little thorn bush and my wife just dropped it right in her tracks boom it, it, it barely even flopped so uh that was a pretty fast hunt and the rest of the day um i could have probably went out and tried to uh uh get another bird but i was happy for her i knew that i had to clean it and you know package it and get it in the freezer so i took care of that kind of business and uh and you know went did some mushroom hunting went on a four-wheeler ride with the kids spent a lot of time with family that day my stepdad comes back and he was struggling with the farm that he was on with uh with a guy riding a dirt bike up and down the road and on the farm and there's other hunter who was he said was calling for one hour straight so yeah so not a lot of activity on on the farm my stepdad was hunting so i was like hey man i got a i got a spot if you want to come with me i don't have a blind i don't have anything you're gonna have to sit underneath of a tree and uh i'll back up behind you and and uh call i mean that that's how i that's how i cut my teeth on turkey hunting and he's like yeah okay let's do it so we uh, park our truck, sun's starting to come up, and uh, we walked to the field the, where the CRP met the timber and started doing a little calling, heard, heard some distant gobbles. So we walked down this cut two track, and uh, I set him underneath of a tree that my wife killed a turkey out of uh, what would have been two years ago. And I put decoys out in front of him probably 20 yards. I backed up behind him about 20 yards started calling and I pulled in a Tom from a long ways away. He was gobbling every time, every time I, uh, I called. And then I started hearing the thum, boom, you know, the, um, the, the noise that they make when they strut and two more Toms come on a show. I couldn't see it according to my, and a whole bunch of, bushes to kind of so i had a little bit of movement the one tom came in to our right and he busted my stepdad turning his head to look because he he shut up he stopped gobbling when he located our position and then he came in my my stepdad turned his head ever so slightly that tom took off running and the toms that were strutting to the left of us i called one in there was a and i broke i broke the one tom off and uh, my stepdad shot him before 6.30 in the morning. So that was a long story for a very short period of time. You've, you've perfected that. Two, two short hunts, two long stories, Dan. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, but it was fun. I mean, although I didn't, I didn't get a, a bird or a chance at a bird, I was just happy that the people – I mean, I, I, the thing I like about turkey hunting, and I think we talked about this in the, the, one of the last episodes – was it's just it's less pressure it's more about fun and enjoying nature and for me it's it's about spending time with family and uh, i got to do all those things and even though i didn't get a bird i got an archery tag so i can hunt until may 4th or 14th 
14th, I think. So I have plenty of time left uh, to try to get one with a bow. Uh, other than that, my season's a success based off of what's already happened. Yeah, I'd say so. That's pretty That's pretty cool to be able to do that with a couple family members and, and have a good a good fun weekend like that. That's sounds like you had a good couple days, my friend. When are you heading to Ohio? Uh, well, my dad is coming down to turkey hunt with me this coming weekend in Michigan, so I'm gonna guide oh, okay. him for a couple days, and then the following weekend I'm going to Ohio. So I'll be the guide this weekend, then hunting just about a week and a half from now. So hopefully there'll be some more good turkey hunting stories to come from me here soon. But uh, it's I think I think it'll be pretty good. From what I was, we had um, I talked with a legendary turkey hunter Ray I. He was on our 100% Wild podcast today. And he's been saying across the country, it's been a lot different than most years because of this later spring in a lot of places. A lot of the toms are henned up already. Um, and so he he said that, you know, the later you get into the season, the better it's going to the better it's going to be, supposedly. He knows a lot more than I do, so I couldn't tell you why. Um, but he seemed to think that the best is yet to come. So I'm hoping that'll be the case here and that, uh, you know, my rough first five days will be uh, gone and things will continue to be like they were on Saturday. Well, so, good luck, Mark Kenyon. Thank you, Dan Johnson. And with that, we are uh, we are needing now to get our guest on the line. We got to give Jeff a call. So let's take a quick break for a word from our partners at Sitka, and then we'll talk to Jeff about two percent for conservation. So last week we began our new segment with Sitka Gear, in which we're sharing incredible Sitka stories. And today we've got just such a story. In fact, a turkey story from Jason Mears. We're going to kick this one off at a point in Jason's hunt where he was about to call it quits and head back to work as it seemed like the birds he was hunting were henned up and heading away. But just when he thought the hunt was over, he spotted the birds much closer than he thought and set up in a less than ideal situation. I'm in the middle of a field. I have nothing to hide behind other than to lay in this three-foot-tall high grass. So basically I laid there on my back with my gum barrel between my knees, hoping that as these birds worked around the side of the hill, that they would be, you know, 20, 30 yards out in front of me. And I would basically pop up like I was in a goose blind and shoot one of them. So Jason waited there laying in the grass for 15 minutes until finally a redhead popped up heading his way. As they came down, they actually came up within six feet of the end of my gum barrel. And basically I either knew that I was either going to miss this turkey because the pattern was so tight or I was going to drop him right where he was. And as he stepped in front of my barrel, I squeezed the trigger and down he went. The other one flew off and extremely exciting hunt because, I mean, I've never had uh, the opportunity to actually shoot a turkey at that range. Six feet is just ridiculous in my opinion. So um, you talk about heart ready to bust out of your chest because, Either had one option, you can get the turkey, or you're gonna you're gonna make him a heck of a lot smarter for the rest of the season. Luckily for Jason, this bird would not have a chance to get any smarter. What a hunt! And on this hunt, Jason was wearing Sitka's early season whitetail pants and core lightweight top. If you'd like to learn more about Sitka, you can visit SitkaGear.com. And now, back to the show. All right, well. Due to unforeseen circumstances and technical difficulties, we have lost Dan Johnson, but we have added Jeff to the line. So welcome to the show, Jeff. 
Thank you, Mark. Glad to be here. Yeah, we uh, I apologize for the lengthy technical issues we've had today trying to make this happen, but I'm glad at least you and me are finally here chatting. Um, I, I briefly introduced you at the beginning in 2% for conservation, but really high level, I'd love to kick things off just hearing a little bit more about who you are. For those that aren't familiar, you know, what are you doing today? What's your background a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So I, uh, I currently work for, for Sitka gear out of Bozeman, Montana. I've been with Sitka for, uh, going on seven years now. I started back in 2009 with them. Uh, I do sales and marketing there, um, focused on, on our guide and outfitter pro deal programs and our e-commerce and online sales. Uh, and, and then, yeah, my nights and weekends and, and kind of a pet project side job have, have started 2% for conservation. Um, so it's been it's been a fun process. Yeah, I bet, and and that's going to be our main the main gist of our conversation is going to be all about that process. But I also correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you are a hunter too, right? <laughs> yeah, heck yeah, I am. No, you know, a hunter, a hunter and a fisherman, more so a hunter than a fisherman. But but I enjoy uh, all things outdoors. But but I am truly a passionate bow hunter uh, more than anything. You know, I've been hunting my whole life and, and kind of progressed through hunting cycle and and uh yeah I, I loved bow hunt now bow hunt anything from you know elk deer bears uh anything really and w- word on the street is that you're going to alaska soon is that true i do i leave in uh in less than 48 hours uh oh. for alaska for for a brown bear hunt that uh that's actually a really cool story i won the brown bear hunt last fall in a raffle um so totally not only a once in a lifetime bucket list hunt but uh but one of those situations where where it was a complete surprise and, on how it came <laughs> came to happen. So yeah, I'm I'm wow. pretty pumped, man. I uh, I got a lot of packing yet to do still, but but we'll yeah, get that. So so what? <laughs> so are you going with a with a firearm or bow first? Off, my question. Uh, I am I am bringing I'm doing the classic bring both weapons. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I'm gonna Full give holster. it the good. Yeah, I'm gonna give it the good college try to kill one with a bow. I, I really uh, I really would like to. Uh, to get an opportunity to shoot one of the bow and, and give it my damnedest, but you, you never know how that goes, and I don't want to pass up the opportunity. So if if we just can't get the right situation, I'm not opposed to uh, to laying some lead too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is a coastal brown bear, right? It is, yeah. It's it's brown bear out of uh, it's a boat hunt out of Sitka, Alaska, uh, and we'll be hunting for, uh, primarily the ABC Islands. So. Wow. It's a part of the country I've never been, um, so there's a whole there's a many layers of excitement there for me to see a new part of the country and and obviously hunt an animal that that is uh, that is you know truly a once in a lifetime type type hunt. Plus the potential of being 20 yards away from a 800 or thousand pound <laughs> brown bear that, that sounds like an experience yeah, too. There's that too. Yeah, I'd be lying to you if uh, if I didn't tell you that I just got a little bit nervous just thinking about it. So I'm sure I'll be shaking a little bit when when that scenario uh, presents itself. What what is? But, your, uh, but that's is, all the fun, right? Yeah. What's your wife think about this or your family? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. She is. Uh, my wife is very supportive of everything I do. She is. Uh, she doesn't quite understand. Uh, bear hunting with a bow in general, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> nonetheless, none, none a brown bear. She she thinks that uh, you should uh, not you should run away from bear. She she has this picture in her mind that I'm gonna shoot the bear with a bow and it's gonna stand up and look at me and pull the arrow out and <laughs> come get revenge. <laughs> oh 
I've, I've tried to reassure her that that's not exactly how it happens. Yeah. But. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, though. I, uh, I got to give you credit. That takes a certain amount of intestinal fortitude to even go on a trip like that. It is, it's a dream of mine, too. Um, but wow, to actually, yeah. well, I haven't done it yet, so we, yeah. we should, we should talk again in 10 days and, and see how it went. But, but yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> pumped nonetheless. Now, have you done other Alaskan hunts before? I have, I, uh, I was fortunate enough to go, um, two years ago to Kodiak mountain goat hunting. Um, wow. and that was, that was my first hunting trip to Alaska. And that was with a good friend of mine. Who is uh, who is a sick athlete, Cole Kramer, mm-hmm. and uh, and we did a mountain goat hunt together, and it was a blast, man. It was it was all uh, that I expected it to be and more. It was it was awesome. And that was Kodiak, so you've had a li- at least a, a little experience with really big bears, I guess, probably right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's where the big bears. That's the world of the big bears. We uh, on our mountain goat hunt, we didn't have any encounters with bears. We saw a few, but. Uh, but yeah, I've I've been I guess you could say I have been in brown bear country before. Well, I uh, I'm excited to talk to you when you get back to hear how this adventure went. I uh, man, that that puts us whitetail hunters to shame. I'll tell you what, from the from the work required and the uh, the adrenaline and the the nerves you've got us beat there. <laughs> well, maybe on that, but I I want to go that far. I love whitetail hunting too, and I, it's one of those things where growing up in, in the western United States, I haven't had a ton of opportunity to hunt whitetails and and every time i do uh i love it man something there's something about whitetail hunting that that obviously you you know more than i do but it's awesome yeah it, it is a lot of fun and i'm I'm actually going to be combining my love for whitetails and my love for your state of montana this coming fall i'm actually gonna nice. do, i'm doing a whitetail hunting outside of bozeman this year oh right on man yeah montana's kind of a sleeper whitetail state uh we we got you know we're so fortunate to have so many animals to hunt and elk are obviously the the prized possession that whitetails kind of go under the radar and we actually have some really uh, really awesome whitetail hunting out here so that'll be sweet yeah that's what I keep hearing and I I love that part of the country so much and I was like you know what I keep hearing you know there's some whitetails out there why not why not give it a try so I'm gonna go out there I'm actually living out there for a month this summer with my wife so I'm gonna do oh, a, nice. little, a little scouting out there. And then um, hopefully find some public land or get permission on something and give it a shot in September with a bow. So that's my game Heck plan. Yeah. Are you, uh, you going to hunt elk too, I hope? I am going to hunt elk. Well, I think I'm going to be hunting elk. Um, it's a little bit up in the air. But if I do, it, it may not be in Montana. It might be in Idaho. Got it. Um, so those plans are still up in the air. But, but it looks like I'm going to have a, a long chunk of time away from home out in the mountains one way or the other. So I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> cool, I, man. Yeah, I've been hunting elk the past few years in Idaho and, and have definitely gotten that in my blood. So nice. I imagine if I grew up out there, I would be a complete elk nut. No doubt about it. <laughs> yeah, well, I hope the whitetail hunt goes good out here. We'll have to connect up way out here for sure because... Uh... That'll be that'll be awesome. Yeah, yeah, I'm stoked. I'm, I'm already. I've got serious. Well, like I mentioned, we're going out there for the summer, so I already have summeritis. In about a month, we're moving out west, so I'm just like itching to get out there and start <laughs> hiking and fishing and scouting for the hunts. And oh, it's gonna be good. But I guess kind of related to that, Jeff, it's kind of funny. Um, one of the reasons why I've got such summeritis and why I'm thinking about going out west so much is because I've been doing a bunch of reading about kind of conservation history and about you know the wildlife and, and what it used to be like in different parts of the country back you know 150 200 years ago i read a really really great book called uh i think it's called the american serengeti 
Oh man, I just listened to a, a podcast with Stephen Ranella and the yes. Meat Eater, and he had uh, what's the author's name of that? I'm spacing it now. Dan, Flores. Yes, Dan Flores. Yeah, that podcast was amazing, man. It uh, it was so interesting to me. Yes, exactly. I heard that podcast and I was fascinated, and I immediately went on Amazon, bought bought his book, and I read it in the last like two three days, and it was. <laughs> Terrific. I mean, one of my favorite books I've read, like both from a just purely interesting and fascinating just to hear about the wildlife, but also from like as a hunter, understanding what was here, you know, before we arrived and then kind of what some of our, our ancestors actions led to um, to. And then I guess also then what some of our ancestors did after that to to return us to a time of relative plenty when it comes to wildlife and wild places. So it was really interesting fascinating book highly recommend anyone read it but the point of me bringing it up is that it has just got me re-jazzed and re-pumped up and excited about trying to make a difference from a conservation standpoint moving forward i think we talked once i don't know when this was jeff um, but just talked about kind of like i think both of ours our journeys as a hunter right you become a hunter and you go through this journey as a hunter but then i think at some point a lot of us end up realizing how much this means to us how much wildlife, wild places, the opportunity to hunt, how much that means to us. And eventually it leads us to want to give back in some way. And so yep. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely at that place in my life where I'm trying to find ways to do that. And, you know, from the previous conversations we've had, it sounds like you have recently been in a place like that too, which has led to this organization, 2% for Conservation. So I guess, I guess I'm curious, Jeff, before we actually go into the, what this organization is and what you actually did, I kind of want to hear about your journey that I kind of highly glossed over in my case, but what, how did you end up being inspired to try to do more or to do something like this? Yeah. Um, you know, it's a great question. And I, uh, as, as all your life experiences kind of create who you are, I haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about it. So it's, it's really an interesting, uh, exercise to do, but, but I grew up, um, I grew up in Northern California and my, in a, in a family that, uh, was sustained from commercial cattle ranching, um, which gave us the benefit of, of having access to hunt on, on private land and, and everybody in my family, it was just kind of a tradition, right? My grandfather loved to hunt and he was a hunter and, and all my uncles and cousins. So, so we, it was just kind of what we did. So from a young age, I, I was, I had opportunities to hunt, um, where we were in Northern California, uh, we had black-tailed deer uh, and a lot of wild pigs. So uh, I really grew up deer hunting, but but really pig hunting became <laughs> such an awesome opportunity, and that's what kind of got me into bow hunting because it's a a year-round season, and uh, and and there's just tons of them. And and through that, then uh, you know, from circumstances that that were just nothing other than lucky, I ended up getting a job out of college working at Sitka when it was still a very small company uh, and just getting off the ground. And through through my role at Sitka, I really got connections and started to learn more about conservation organizations. And I'd always uh, I'd always known of, you know, the, of RMEF and generally through my family and my experiences hunting, I knew what conservation organizations did, but but didn't have a deep understanding of the impact they had. And, and through my work at SICK, I really started to learn more about what that was and how important they were uh, and, and the challenges that, that they had from a fundraising standpoint and, and really how much work it went in uh, and the passion and the time that, that the organizations depended on to be successful. And, 
and I think through that journey, that's that's kind of you know high level, real quick story of really where my mind has has evolved into thinking about what we can do more as an industry, as individuals, as businesses to to support these conservation groups. Yeah, and so so you got to a place where you, maybe you knew you wanted to do something more. I think if if I remember correctly, there was a specific event or time that actually then sparked an idea for a specific type of organization. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, totally. There was. So I, um, I think it was 2000, I could get this wrong, but I think it was 2013, uh, QDMA, the Quality Deer Management Association, which, which I'm sure you're familiar with, had, uh, had what they called, I think they called it at the time, the Whitetailed Deer Summit, or maybe it was just the Deer Summit, but it was in, uh, it was in Missouri, and what they did with this summit, it was really cool. They brought in a whole bunch of different key stakeholders from the hunting industry. Uh, they had a, a big conference generally about the state of the hunting industry, the state of conservation, and then obviously focused a bit on whitetail, deer, and the challenges we have, uh, and and current events and issues. And then they broke, what was cool, they broke all these different stakeholders out into groups, uh, with objectives, and we had these—I uh, think it was two days worth of meetings in these stakeholder groups, uh, which were made up of—you know—one stakeholder group was biologists. They had one that was uh, like media. They had one which was the group I sat in that was industry, and I was the representing SICA at the time. So it was a bunch of manufacturers and brands and retailers, uh, and then they had a breakout group of, of hunters that they invited. So the theme was that what they wanted to do was have these different stakeholder groups brainstorm together and prioritize uh, their their you know top concerns or priorities that need to be addressed as an industry as a whole. And with a big learning, what kind of came out of our group as as the industry group was was uh, there were a couple of things, but one of the top ones that stuck with me was what can we do as as an industry as profitable businesses relying on hunting and fishing as our consumer base, what can we do more to support conservation groups? And uh, and through that, we brainstormed some ideas and kicked it around. But that really stuck with me. And so much that on my flight home, on my travel home, I, I really couldn't stop thinking about it where it just hit home that, that the shoot, man, there's got to be, there's got to be a way or there's got to be a mechanism or something that we could do collectively as a huge industry. I mean, you look at all the businesses and hunting and fishing across, I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge industry, tons of jobs, tons of revenue. Uh, what can we do underneath one umbrella as an industry to do more to support conservation? Because the reality is, if hunting and fishing were to disappear, all of our businesses uh, wouldn't exist anymore. We wouldn't have customers. If we're selling a hunting and fishing product, we wouldn't have customers if hunting and fishing didn't exist anymore. So so that was kind of that one event where that started. That was really kind of the birth of 2% for conservation. I, I, I went down this journey from then on of, of trying to figure out what the heck we could do, is there something we could do, and, and where we've landed today is is with, with this organization, 2% Conservation. Yeah, it's interesting. Also, coming out of that deer summit, you mentioned the National Deer Alliance was started. That's uh, right. And I actually work with the National Deer Alliance, so both of us had something that came out of that summit, interestingly yeah. enough. Um, yeah, it turns out that was a profitable uh, event that QDMA put in, or, yeah. or successful. Yeah, yeah that, that you're exactly right. They spawned from that, and I think it was shortly after that event that that they were going to form the NDA, and this mm-hmm. was going to be be kind of the the organization for all that represented all deer species. Yeah, and I can tell you from a behind the scenes standpoint, it has been a 
a long and interesting road of trying to get that organization up off the ground. And uh, there, there's, I, I only work kind of in an ancillary type of way. I kind of consult and help with some digital things. But it's been interesting to see all that goes into building the foundation of a group like that that's working with so many different stakeholders and trying to do some really big, exciting things. But I think we're now at a point that some really good, exciting stuff is is coming. So I'm excited that there will be some things happening here in the coming weeks and months. Just for those of you who have heard me talk about the NDA before, keep your eyes out. There's going to be some stuff coming that I think uh, will be really positive for all deer and all deer hunters. So that said, I digress. Jeff, you mentioned coming out of that event, this that kind of helped catalyze this idea Tell me about the idea. Tell me about where it went from that. You're on the airplane. You're inspired. You have this idea. What happens next when you're trying to start an organization like that? <laughs> yeah, well, at that point, I didn't really even know what the idea was. <laughs> I kind of knew conceptually what, what the objective would be and what the problem that that I thought there was an opportunity to, to address was. Um, but I kind of really just started you know, doing a lot of uh, – a lot of Google research, right, of, of where there were parallels in other industries of, of certain concepts or certain ideas that, that, uh, that have tried to address and approach the similar problems. Uh, and I, you know, researched some of the ones that stand up that I remember looking at were, were some checkoff programs. So the agriculture industry, right, coming from my background in, in cattle ranching, the beef checkoff program was, was one that, that I was like, huh, that's an interesting concept where, where industry businesses have come together and funded and pulled together money to to launch a marketing campaign per se, right? And that's where, if you're not familiar with the beef checkoff program, but that's kind of that's what created the beef. It's what's for dinner campaign, right? Hmm. And there's there's similar ones with uh, with milk, the Got Milk commercials yeah, uh, that yeah. were so popular for a while, with you know with the milk mustaches and all this on all the different <laughs> celebrities or public figures. That was a a checkoff program from the dairy industry. So I did a little bit of research on those and, and there were some parallels there. I also looked at, you know, kind of the recycling campaign, which has become such a standard now and people are so used to seeing the recycling symbol on products. Um, there is another organization called the Rainforest Alliance that, that I learned about and they, uh, their focus was, uh, was around, I'm probably going to screw this up, but a lot of where you see their campaigns around coffee and coffee producers and making sure that the manufacturers and producers of coffee are not destroying rainforests. Hmm. Um, but then the one, the one organization that I came across that, that ended up being kind of our, our driver and we learned a lot from uh, was 1% for the planet. And 1% for the planet is, is an organization that still exists today and is very successful and was started by Yvonne Chouinard, who's the founder of Patagonia, along with uh, a guy named Craig Matthews, who owns a fly shop here in Montana and West Yellowstone. And the concept of their organization was was that businesses would sim- would essentially do a self-imposed tax, where they would give back one percent of sales to uh, to environmental causes, back to the planet, right? Which is where their naming came from. And uh, and, I, and when I first came across 1% for the Planet and started learning more about it, the more and more I, I asked questions and read and researched, it, it made a lot of sense for the hunting and fishing community. And it, it was kind of that light bulb moment of, of holy crap, this, this, is, this is good. This makes a lot of sense. And, and I think this could have a huge impact on hunting and fishing. Um, 
so that that that's really when I got uh, kind of got a kickstart and some motivation on going down a specific path rather than just kind of you know having a big idea cloud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's that's the big leap too when you go from the idea cloud to actually the real thing, and now you can take action. Yeah, exactly. So did you? I don't know. It just seems like such a crazy idea to think of an idea like this and then actually be able to put an action and do it. Was that like, did you really think you could do it or was it kind of this crazy idea and you thought maybe I'll tell somebody about this and they could do it or did you just know from the get go? Yeah, I can do this. Uh, no, I didn't, I didn't know that. And I, I don't think I ever had a, uh, not that I can speak of, I've ever had a like, yep, this is, we're going to, you know, this is it. And I'm going to do it tight moment. What I guess what really happened was I started, uh, asking questions, right, with, with people that knew more than I did, people that had more knowledge of the industry than I did. And, and one of the guys that um, that's helped me a ton down the road, that one of the first people I went to was, was Randy Newberg. Um, for a couple of reasons, I, I've known Randy. Um, he lives here in Bozeman. Uh, we've developed a relationship over the years, and he's, uh, he's involved and knowledgeable in, in the world of conservation in a way that, that I am not. Uh, so that's he was one of the first people I, I just was like, hey, Randy, I got a crazy idea. I want to run this off you. What do you think? You know, and <laughs> and that, and uh, and I did that with a handful of people. And, and generally the response from everybody was super positive. And yeah, this is this makes a lot of sense. Let's this this needs to happen. Right. And, and I think after collectively hearing hearing that enthusiasm, uh, you know, from from people who I respected and I thought had had a good perspective on, on the industry and the need. That was kind of what, what kept my motivation going of, okay, so now what's, it, what's the next step look like? What do we have to do to, to move this down the path? If, if generally I feel confident that, that people, smart people are, are on board and, and see an opportunity for this, then how do we keep it going? Yeah, so how do you keep it going? What happened next? I'm, I'm <laughs> uh, loving. I'm loving this. Like it's like a nonprofit entrepreneur's journey. I'm fascinated by it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which which uh, I'll, I'll digress for a minute. Which is interesting because I've always uh, I've always had a desire to own my own business or start my own business, and uh, you know I've always assumed it would be something that would be profitable. So <laughs> to have put so much time and passion into something that will make me no money has been. Uh, interesting mental conflict in itself, but, <laughs> yeah, but uh, I know there's a better cause there. <laughs> it'll 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 pay dividends in the future in different ways. It'll come back to you. Sure. Yeah. But uh, but yeah. So next, I mean, what was cool was one of the questions I had, or what Randy came back for was uh, was was well, Craig Matthews, this guy that started One Percent for the Planet with Yvonne Chouinard, lives in West Yellowstone, which is only a hour and a half drive from Bozeman. And I was like, well, heck, does, does anybody I know know him? And, and Randy was like, I, I know some people that know him. And, and we, uh, it was kind of cool. We, we kind of, we pretty much cold called him and said, hey, hey, Craig, you don't know us, but uh, would you be willing to have lunch with us? And <laughs> we pick your brain and run something by you. And, uh, and we did just that. So Randy and I drove down and, and met Craig in Ennis, Montana, which is about halfway between. And, and at that point, we didn't even really have a, a really formalized concept yet other than, then this is what we, we think we could do. Um, and we sat down and had lunch with Craig, and he was super nice, helpful dude. Um, typical Montana, loved to fish. He owns a fly shop, so obviously loved to fish. Uh, appreciate and respects hunting and hunters. And he was uh, and he was more than willing to share information with us. A very philanthropic guy um, that 
that generally is passionate, wants to make the world a better place, wants to help wildlife. And, uh, and that was really refreshing. And, and that opened Randy and I's eyes to a lot of things about 1% for the planet and the organization that we didn't, uh, we didn't realize or we didn't know. Uh, and it turns out in hindsight, looking back, that, that was a very helpful conversation. And that got us down, down a path where, where we truly started working our organization and framing it around the same kind of template and business model that 1% for the planet has. And, and we actually uh, started with the working name of the organization as 1% for conservation, which, uh, which we can get into too because that, as you notice now, our name is different. Yeah, um, twice as good. Twice as good, right? And that, <laughs> and that, uh, and that became that came out of a lot of feedback that we had. So we we really started building the organization one percent for conservation. We, you know, worked with um, a good buddy of mine, uh, Brent, who is on on the board. Um, he's a CPA here in town. I, you know, I started doing my normal Google research. I feel like I'm a Google expert, right? I don't, <laughs> you can learn a lot from Google, but I don't know if it's always the best resource. True. But uh, but we needed to get 501c3 status from the IRS to start a nonprofit, right? That that's kind of like you know if you're doing a profitable business, you have to incorporate it. If you're gonna start a nonprofit, you gotta you have to get a determination from the IRS that you're a legitimate 501c3. And and uh, and I I was like oh, I could do this, you know, it's probably just a form that you had to fill out. Well, it turns out it's a lot more work than that. <laughs> Uh, so I recruited my buddy Brent, who who I met from sitting on the local board of a Mule Deer Foundation chapter here in Bozeman. He's the treasurer for that. Uh, and I said, hey, man, any chance you want to help me figure out how to do this? Here's my idea. And and I looked at the 501c3 form, and it's it's giant, and it's daunting, and I have no <laughs> clue where to start. <laughs> and uh, and he said, yeah. And, and he essentially did the, you know, help volunteer his time to, to go through the process and do that. And uh, so that was a big step. And and then after then, after that, it's a $800 fee to file that. I was kind of committed. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. Right. And so I took, you know, $800 out of my savings, which, which my wife wasn't super stoked on, but <laughs> she had faith in me. And then, you know, from then on, I, I had skin in the game at least yeah. to, to keep it going. Yeah, I bet. So... I, maybe we should. We should we've, I've been kind of building the suspense here. We haven't really said too much in detail about what two percent for conservation is is exactly doing. You've, we've kind of alluded to it a little bit, talking about one percent for the planet. But yep. But now you've got this new name, two percent for conservation. Which, if you want to elaborate again, why you change the name, you can. But I also would be curious just to start hearing a little bit more. Okay, so what what did you end up finally finally settling on as to what this group is going to do? Yeah. So, um, so two, twofold, right? So the, the problems and the issues that came out of that whitetail summit at QDMA were, were kind of twofold in my mind. It was, it was one, how do we, uh, help fund NGOs? NGOs is, is an acronym for non-governmental organizations, which, which are all your kind of 501c3, c4 conservation groups. So, um, they're not your state. So there's, there's kind of two different avenues in wildlife conservation, right? There's your state and federal agencies, right? The Department of Fish and Game for each state. Mm-hmm. And then there's the elk foundations of the world and the mule deer foundations and QDAs in the world who are who are non-governmental organizations, right? And so what we came out of that was, okay, how do we help get more money to those organizations? 
Um, and then in my mind, secondary, it was, and this kind of comes from my experience at Sitka and also my affinity as a consumer for certain hunting brands is how do we provide recognition for businesses who are committed to giving back to conservation, right? Because mm-hmm. um, I truly believe there's value there. There's value for a brand to market that. And there's there's consumers who do appreciate that. Like I would, I would totally rather buy products from companies who are philosophically aligned with with my beliefs in supporting conservation than ones who aren't absolutely um so that was kind of the 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 big takeaways of of what we're going to do and and you know one percent for the planet uh their model did that very well um and and when i started talking about how this would fit into the hunting and fishing world it um it, it it made a lot of sense in that a business would be certified by our organization, 2% for conservation, that they do meet certain criteria. Uh, and with with that certification, then they could use the logo, the 2% for conservation logo on their products to promote uh, their commitment to conservation to, to consumers. So at, at the highest level, that's kind of what we do as an organization is certify that businesses do meet criteria that we define um, of giving back to conservation. Okay, and, and so taking a step back, your your template, your inspiration for this was 1% for the planet, and, and you might have mentioned this, if I missed, I apologize, but just to clarify what they do, the yep. way that they qualify the brands that, that are part of 1% for the planet is that that company needs to donate, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's 1% of revenue, or 1% of, is that yep, right? One, of, yep, it's 1% of sales or gross revenue, however you want to define it, but it's your top line Revenue, you know, so as your as your business is tax return, you got to report revenue income. It's one percent of that, so it's gross gross sales. Okay, so a company donates one percent of gross sales to certified NGOs that support the environment of the planet, or whatever, and then they can get stamped with a one percent for the planet kind of brand, and and uh, they qualify. And hey, these you know that organization is qualified as yes, they really are doing positive things for for the earth, etc. So then, exactly. So then, you guys, you took this idea and said that makes a lot of sense. But you know, how can we make it better? How can we apply it to the hunting and fishing world? So how did you do that, Jeff? Yeah. So so that's right. So one of the through my conversations and learnings with with a bunch of different people and organizations, the thing that came up beyond money, right? So your one percent of sales is is essentially money that's going to go help fund these these conservation groups. Um, I, I heard feedback that arguably time was more valuable for conservation groups than money, right? Now, some people might debate that, but the fact is time and money are the two most important things that conservation groups need to be successful in achieving their mission work, right? They need volunteers. Conservation isn't just a concept, right? Conservation is is actually doing on-the-ground work, be it with wildlife and or habitat or uh or both, right? So, so yes, you need you need money to help fund that work, but you need volunteers to to actually do the work, um, and that is where our second one percent comes from, and, and kind of the slogan that we've branded our name, our naming convention, as as we mentioned, is two percent for conservation, and that is defined by committing to give back one percent of your time, plus one percent of your money is it equals two percent for conservation so that's that's kind of how we've evolved that model and that foundation that one percent for the planet built 
and, and we believe that makes the model even more impactful and stronger for fish and wildlife uh, conservation groups. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the idea. When I first heard about this, I, I like I genuinely got like physically excited. Like I was like, yes, I was like, this is a great idea. This makes all the sense in the world because <laughs> because there are you know, there are so many hunters and anglers out there who care about this type of thing. And I think that there are many companies that care about this type of thing. But to your point, I'm not sure all those companies that are actually doing good things are being recognized. And sure. I'm not sure if maybe there are some companies out there that aren't doing things that need a little bit of a, an additional incentive maybe to push them in the right direction. And this seems to do both of those things um, in a really positive way. So can, you, can we start diving the t- into the details here? Can you tell me for businesses, first off, how exactly do they get involved and what does this mean for them? Yeah, of course. So, so businesses, uh, they have to meet the minimum criteria, right? And that criteria is, is defined by um, what I think we've done a pretty good job of saying is 1% of your sales. So if you give back 1% of your sales to conservation groups, uh, that's one half of the criteria. Now, now, there's a lot of questions that have arisen from that. So what, do you, what is defined as giving back? And what defines conservation groups are the two, the two most needed clarification points. So giving back is, is we define it as if your business is foregoing proceeds for that conservation group's mission work, right? And it is the easiest way to look at it at the highest level. So that could be product donations, right? So a lot of these groups, their traditional funding mechanism is, is the banquets that we, we are all familiar with of going to, to the local or regional uh, Mule Deer Foundation banquet, and they have a bunch of product for sale. Well, that product comes from somewhere, right? It comes from these businesses that uh, either donate it or sell it at a lower cost so the conservation group can resell it and raise funds. So those proceeds foregone from that for your business, that that counts as a contribution to conservation. Those are hugely important and critical to the fundraising of conservation groups. Um, other things that count are, are obviously direct donations, but, but things that are often overlooked or are sponsorships and advertisements with conservation groups. So, so how conservation groups have evolved over the years to raise funds or to offer corporate sponsorships. So, so X business wants to work with, uh, with a certain, with QDMA, well, QDMA will say, hey, yeah, this is great. You We'll do a sponsorship package with you where we will give you a print ad in our magazine. We'll do an email blast. We'll, we'll try to help promote your brand as much as we can. Well, that, that's a contribution to conservation too. Even though it's a marketing investment for your brand, that's important for conservation groups and necessary funds for them to achieve their mission. Um, other things are uh, exhibiting at, at, a, at a conservation group's trade show, right? Trade shows... Uh, or consumer shows for some conservation groups are are some of their biggest fundraising uh, events. Um, one that comes to mind that that we at SICK exhibit at every year is the Wild Sheep Foundation. They have a a show in Reno every year, and they have everything you know businesses, brands, outfitters, but a bunch of vendors. But that is a, a huge fundraising mechanism for them. So committing to go to that show as a business uh, to work with them is a contribution to help them raise funds. So. So collectively, when you start to look at all the different things you do as a business, it, it, it's, it, it becomes uh, it's an interesting exercise, and, and there's a lot of opportunity for you to promote your brand through your contributions, which is a huge advantage that, that I think we as a hunting and fishing industry have over, 
over you know one percent for the planet and, and their target demographic. So so that's one percent one that's the first part of it. You have to prove that your company gives back one percent of sales. And then the second part of it is one percent of time. And, and we base that off of uh, you know there's there's roughly two thousand and eighty work hours in the year. So one percent of that is is approximately twenty one hours. And it's collectively as a business, whether you have one employee or whether you have a hundred employees, collectively does your does your business give back twenty one hours of volunteer time? And, and why this is so important uh, outside of outside of the need of of conservation groups to have more volunteers and more man hours, but it gets those businesses involved, right? So I don't think it's appropriate to say it's easy to write a check, but arguably any business can just write a check. And, and that isn't as impactful as saying, hey, not only do we write a check, but we're going out and we're getting involved and we're doing a river cleanup project or we're, you know, we're doing a, a fence removal project or we're doing whatever that is. We're, we're doing more than just writing a check and we're showing our commitment is deeper than that. And we're passionate enough to go out and get our hands dirty for for the conservation cause as well. And what I love about this is that, yeah, let's say 21 hours, that can make a big difference, but let's say you get someone out there maybe in the past hasn't been willing to get their, their hands dirty or do something like that. I think just by getting, giving people a little incentive to get out and do some of these things a little bit more, there seems to be like an exponential factor of growth beyond them, like a ripple effect where that person yeah. realizes, hey, this did make an impact. You know, this is a great thing I could get involved in. And that person influences their network, who influences their network. And I feel like if, you know, more and more companies get involved in things like this, the effect that can have is is pretty profound, I feel like. And it's something that, again, like you said, money is, of course important but it takes boots on the ground it takes action it takes time and energy and this is a pretty cool way of of helping people get that extra nudge that yes this is a great thing and it can it can benefit all of us the wildlife habitat and then also your business in a way too yeah ex exactly you know i think i think you make a good point there i hope that and time will tell as as we get this organization going and we learn but i hope that 21 hours once businesses commit to that I think, and I hope what they'll find is they're good, they actually volunteer much more than that. Um, at, 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 not even just the ripple effect, but but just beyond that, you know. Yeah, I, I kind of wish you could have a higher hour count, just because tw <laughs> twenty-one hours seems so achievable. But at the same time, it's it makes a lot of sense. It helps people. You know, it feels achievable, so yeah. that people want to get involved. And I think once you get that foot in the door, I think I'm guessing that you will have a lot of organizations and people involved in those organizations who, who get started and then who just want to do more. So yep. I think that'll be, that'll be great. And I, I guess I want to, I want to emphasize again, in order for this, at least this is my assumption, you tell me if I'm wrong, but in order for this to work, right? If, if we say, if we tell, explain to a business, Hey, if you do this and this, you know, we're going to help you, better demonstrate to your consumers and to people out there that you are giving back to conservation, that you do care about these greater things. But the most important onus really is on us as the consumers because we need to prove, we need to prove this out, right? By saying we, the, the buyers of products, we do care if X company is actually working toward a larger positive, a larger good. We do care if Y company is giving back their time and money. And the way we do that is by telling them, but then also most importantly, telling them with our wallets, right? We actually need to use this as a part of our consumer choice. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. The, this model 
uh, is completely reliant on us as sportsmen and women demanding that that businesses are involved, right? And and we do that by by getting active on on social media, by talking about conservation, by showing our appreciation for it. But but yes, by then purchasing products from companies who do give back to conservation, and that's that's the uh, that's what makes the circle go go around. Um, and, and you can feel good as a consumer by doing that because you go out and buy a new bow next year. If if you buy a bow from a company that's a member of Two Percent for Conservation, you know, you know that that a portion of that sale of what that check you're writing to the bow shop is is going back um, to a conservation cost. Yeah, I, I almost feel like you know once this and I hope and I I feel confident that it will once this gains steam and more and more companies you know get involved. I hope this becomes just a plan out prereq. Like if you want to be involved in the outdoor hunting and fishing industry. You just have to be part of two percent for conservation because hunters and anglers demand that the companies that produce their gear also are doing larger positive things to make sure that we can hunt and fish and have wildlife and wild places in the future. I think us as individuals, we need to be doing that too, and I think we should we should expect the same thing from the companies that are that are profiting from it too. And 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 by saying that, I'm including myself in that too, right? I run a business in the hunting and fishing world. I too feel like my business and myself should be held to those kinds of standards. And I love the fact that 2% for conservation is a way to do that in a positive way. Yeah. And I think, uh, I totally agree. And I think that's a great vision. I, I do want to point out, um, to that point, and, and especially because I used an archery company as an example is, is we have a history of doing this as, as sportsmen, right? The Pittman Robertson act, which was voted in by sportsmen and, and written up by sportsmen in 1937 is, is exactly that and on a much higher uh, scale where I think now it's 11% of uh, guns, ammunition, archery and archery equipment sales go back uh, to funding state fish and wildlife agencies. So, so that model exists. That model is successful and, and it's already embraced by consumers, sportsmen and by, by businesses. So you know, to give archery companies credit, even if they're not members of 2% for conservation, they are already the ones responsible uh, for for funding our state and fish and wildlife agencies, right? Um, yeah. So, so that's really important. I think what's cool about the 2% for conservation model is, is it takes that same uh, standard and that same philosophy, and it helps us raise money for the NGOs. So whereas the Pittman-Robertson Act is strictly focused on on state and federal wildlife management, this is this is a way for businesses one to uh, to do a similar thing, but help NGOs. And then two, the cool thing about this model is, as a business, you have the choice to invest and contribute your money to whoever you want. Where the Pittman Robertson Act goes into uh, a fund that is then dispersed by the government, and and you as you know Matthews Archery, when you write that Pittman Robertson check, you don't necessarily have a say in where it goes. Um, nor does it necessarily help you build your brand through through two percent for conservation. You can invest it in marketing opportunities with specifically conservation groups that you are passionate about. So so there's some cool cool spins on it from that standpoint. Yeah, yeah definitely. Now, if I own a business right now and I'm listening to this, what do I do to get my business involved? So uh, so our our website uh, is fishandwildlife.org. So the easiest way uh, to get in contact with us is to, to go to our website, 
we have a lot of information that uh, that you know is specifically about the things we've been discussing on this on this podcast. Um, but you need to get a hold of us, and we uh, we need to go through the certification process. And, and the certification process is so important to to our model because it upholds upholds the integrity of what we're doing. Um, that we need to we need to have a serious conversation and a look at at who you've contributed to, what those contributions are, what they add up to, to make sure they truly are one percent of of your sales, and then. And then look at your volunteer time and, and what you're doing uh, and making sure that there's 21 hours there. And then um, I guess the, the caveat that we obviously haven't mentioned, we as an organization need funding as well. <laughs> that, that's, how, that's how it works. And, uh, and so then there's a, there's a membership fee, right? So you get certified and then you pay an annual membership fee. The membership fee is what we run the overhead for of 2% conservation and that, that's essentially your licensing fee to then be a certified member and, and then you're able to use the 2% conservation logo to help promote your commitment back. Awesome. Now, as I understand it, there's actually a component to this that is relevant not just to businesses but also individuals, which is a pretty unique thing. Can you, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, for sure. So the, there definitely is. You're exactly correct and it's it was one, uh, this component of what we've built into organization came from direct feedback from, uh, from Craig Matthews with 1% for the plant. This is one of those little nuggets of information that we got that was, that was uh, super helpful and informative. And the question I asked him, one of the questions I asked him was, okay, this, I mean, I'm, you know, at the time my mind was blowing. I was like, this is amazing. But if you could have done something different, what would it have been? And he said that he would have built in or structured a way for individuals to be involved. And what they had learned um, from hearsay, right? It's obviously hearsay, but what I understand they learned is that as they built this brand, consumers and individuals who weren't necessarily affiliated with the, with any business were so passionate about what they were trying to do as an organization, about 1% of the planet, that they just wanted to be involved. They wanted to help. They wanted to know what they can do. And they didn't really have a mechanism for them to do that. Um, so, so I took that to heart and, and we brainstormed, uh, a bunch of different ideas and ways that we felt, um, would be relevant to, to hunting and fishing conservation, what we were trying to do. And, and what kept coming up to the surface was, well, there's a ton of people out there that meet our criteria that, that volunteer time and contribute money to conservation causes just the way we are asking businesses to do, uh, and then likewise, there are a ton of people who don't. So how, how can we, one, do the same thing, recognize the people that do, and two, encourage other people who aren't necessarily involved, who are at that stage in their hunting and fishing career where they aren't, where, where you and I are, like we discussed, ready to give back. How do we encourage them and give them an opportunity to do so? so? So what we've done is kind of create this individual certification process where if you are uh, if you are an individual who gives back one percent of your time, same twenty one hours and one percent of your income, whether you make you know twenty grand a year or one hundred and fifty grand a year or whatever it is, if you're if you meet those criteria, then in our mind you are a true conservationist and you deserve recognition for that. And we want we want to help promote uh, you for what you've done and and help you know leverage that to get more people involved. 
So similar process then too, if you do those things, uh, there's a way on the website to start a certification process and, and move forward. There is. There. Yeah. So, so we're doing the certification process for individuals is a little, a little different. It's not as, as strict or stringent. It's more on the honor system of, of yes, I do do this or, or no, I don't do this or yes, I, I want to and will commit to doing this. Um, and it's free. It's not a membership thing. It, it doesn't necessarily, it, you're not, you don't become a member per se of 2% conservation, but it's a way for you, uh, to, to certify that. Yeah, yeah, I am. I do give back. I am, you know, certified conservationist. I'm doing more than just buying my tags and licenses every year. I'm volunteering for the local chapter of DU and I am, uh, renewing my memberships to all these different organizations every year. And uh, and I'm supporting conservation personally. Um, so so there's no cost. It's free to get certified. We send you a free sticker that that I hope is something that people will be proud to put on their their trucks and their coolers or whatever. Uh, and then you know as we evolve and, and get more business members, um, I, I really hope and envision an opportunity to to do you know giveaways and promotions and discounts and, and incentives for these people as, as a thank you for, uh, for what they've done and they're giving back. So one of them that I'm working with SICA right now is, is can we give away a set of SICA gear to all of our individually certified members, you know, as, as a, Hey, thank you for doing what you do. That's awesome. Here's a cool, here's a cool little promotion. So I think we have a lot of opportunity and things we could do with it as we evolve and grow and learn. Um, but, but just since we turned the website on live and we kind of launched less than a month ago now, I've been super excited with how many uh, how many people have come to our website and gotten certified as as uh, true conservationists. That's awesome. Well, I would definitely encourage anyone listening right now to go do that. If you if you think you already do qualify, go ahead and make sure to submit and and do that. But if if you don't quite qualify yet, here's your little. Uh, nudge to to make it happen i personally need to do a little better job on my time so i'm going to make sure i get that full 21 hours and i i'm excited to be certified from a two percent for conservation standpoint and uh yeah i think it's i think it's a super cool idea to have this individual option um just to get both businesses and individuals involved in thinking about this kind of thing it just has a lot of a lot of positive ramifications now this is something I was thinking about, as you were mentioning, it's going back to the business side. How, you know, what happens now? How do you get businesses involved in this? I mean, is it a point where you guys are reaching out and trying to talk to a lot of companies saying, hey, this is something you should be involved in? Or is this something that's kind of dependent on us as consumers going out and talking to our company, to our favorite brands and saying, hey, you got to do this? You know, how does this happen? Yeah, no, that's, this is where uh, the rubber meets the road, right? All the work, <laughs> all the work is now. We, um, we're, we're doing a little bit of all that. So, but, but primarily, yes, proactively reaching out to, to businesses and, and, uh, showing them and explaining to them to the, what the model is and, and, uh, our strategy and our standpoint out of the gate is, okay, let's, let's look at all the companies who are, who we believe are already meeting this criteria. And there's a lot of them, right? There are a lot of companies who give back probably more than 1% of their time and their money. Um, so let's let's approach those companies first and have a conversation about, hey man, I think this will help you get get recognition for what you're doing, and and you re- you don't really have to change you don't have to do anything different you don't have to change or realign your investment strategy and your marketing strategy 
you're already meeting the criteria. This is just a multiplier effect to help leverage that commitment more. So I'm hoping we can knock down some dominoes quickly with that, but um, and that's going to be very valuable. But the real win then I think will come when companies who aren't necessarily meeting the criteria, who aren't giving back 1% now, start to see that value build with those brands. That's that's when we will get you know incremental dollars to conservation. Once those companies start having those conversations internally of of hey look at look at what you know such and such brand has done with becoming a member of two percent for conservation you know we we really want to be involved we want to be part of that you know we need to step up and give more to conservation and get more involved that's what's that's what excites me and when our model will really be impacting conservation because then then you're getting incremental dollars in rat you know and, and growing the pie yeah. um so yeah, so that's kind of what we're doing. We're, we're reaching out to businesses. We've had some awesome conversations already out of the gate. Um, personally, for me, because because I work at Sitka, and and because Sitka has been so helpful in getting this thing off the ground, uh, I really want to get a clothing company on board right away because I want I want to show the world that, and I think it'll make a strong message to to hunters everywhere and to fishermen everywhere that. That yeah, businesses compete in the marketplace for the products they sell, but but there's certain issues uh, like conservation where we aren't competitors, where we're on the same team and we work together on things. So so for me, um, it's it's going to be really important. I think that it'll make a strong statement to the whole industry that that yes, you know, these two brands compete and healthily, and they should try to compete with selling the products on the market, but. Hey, look, we're on the same team for this. We're both members of 2% for conservation. We both believe in this cause and are giving back. Yeah. Well, I can think of some companies like that that I sure would think would want to and, and I would hope would want to be involved in something like this in addition to what's what sounds like some terrific support from Sitka, which I'm excited to hear about. Um, so what what can we do, us listening right now, what can we do to help move this cause forward? Well, um, it's a great question. I have so many different ideas. I'm trying to quickly prioritize or think in my mind what would be most impactful. But, um, you know, we're going to leverage part of our campaign as 2% for conservation. What, what we use are the money that we get for overhead for outside of administration stuff is, is to build value and to, to get to reach customers, consumers, um, we, as you used it, uh, to understand more about our model and what we're doing because we need customers to value value this and that in turn is what's going to build the value for business members. If no, if no consumers recognize our logo, then it doesn't necessarily do a business any good to put it on their packaging or their hang tag. If, if customers don't, don't understand the, uh, the philosophy of what we're trying to achieve and the impact that, that being a member of 2% Conservation has, then, then the value is not there for businesses. So, so we need help. Uh, we're going to leverage social media a lot because of the low investments, and, and and we are a pretty lean and frugal organization at this point. So, we could use some help, uh, you know, sharing uh, our mission on social media, and, and getting the word out there. The more impressions, the more eyes we can get on our mission and our logo. That that's going to be really important in the next 12 months. Uh, and then, and then we could use encouragement of of the businesses that that you support and appreciate that you think think should be members. We we want you to to tell 
if your favorite gun company is Kimber or your favorite clothing company is First Light or your favorite bow company is Matthews, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. We want you to tell your, your brands how important conservation is to you as a customer and that you value their commitment and you want them to be involved. Yeah. I want to, I want to make a, um, I want to make a request. I don't ask a whole lot, but I'm going to ask something of everybody listening right now. And I, and I say this, and I don't take this lightly because I don't want to bother people with requests like this too often, but because I think this is so important, I want to ask every single one of you. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of you out there listening right now. I want each of you, please think of at least one of your favorite companies. Just pick one to start at least one of your favorite companies and email them within the next two days about 2% for conservation. And if every one of the, you know, 15,000 of us emails one company today or tomorrow and says, hey, I think you should be involved with 2% for conservation, that could make a huge difference. Can you imagine if even just 100 companies out of that, of the 15,000 emails or whatever, if just 100 of those companies actually decide to take action on this and give back 1% of their revenue and time, what kind of difference that can make for deer and elk and sheep and ducks and wild places and public lands. I mean, that can make a huge difference. So this is my, my request, my call to action. All of you, you right now, you listening, make one email today or tomorrow. Please do that, and I think you could make a big difference just with a simple email, Jeff. Don't you think that would be a pretty good thing for each one of these people to do? I love it, man. I love it. I think that uh, that's awesome. That's what, that's what we, need. we need. We need companies to start hearing from consumers demanding that, that they give back and get involved. Yeah, well, I can tell you I'm going to email every one of our Wired Hunt partners tomorrow and give them a little uh, information about 2% and encourage them to get involved. And hopefully we can start there and, and keep on spreading the good word because I think this is a very positive, positive thing for, for the future of hunting and fishing, to be honest. So I'm curious, Jeff, what's, what's your vision for this five years, ten years down the road from today? What's it look like? Oh, man. Um... <laughs> that's that's fun for me to think about and uh uh you know i hope so for a benchmark um and, and don't quote me on these numbers but they're going to be close but one percent for the planet as a benchmark has uh over two thousand member businesses and through those businesses in their 10 years or 12 years of existence their claim is that they've funneled over a hundred million dollars to environmental causes Wow. Uh, which, which, think about that for a minute. That's, that's awesome. That's staggering. That's huge. Um, now, what can we do? I think, I think, and this may be, it may sound a little pompous of me, but I think as sportsmen and sportswomen, what I've learned working in the hunting industry for, for the last seven years is there, aren't, there isn't very many more niche demographics that are more passionate than, than hunters and fishermen. Uh, and that makes me really excited to think about because I feel like we, we can make, uh, we can achieve those similar metrics, right? Um, I think there's, there's a huge opportunity for, for what we can do in hunting and fishing. We have a history, hunter and fishermen, uh, have a history of, of taking things, uh, next level, owning them and, and really making a huge impact. Um, so, so I think, you know, when not too long ago, maybe six, said, man, I'd be stoked to get out of the first 12 months, uh, 20 member businesses in the first year. And, uh, and I think I said 150 individual certifications or something. And, 
and I think we can blow that out of the water now just after having having launched for for three weeks now and the response we've got. So I'd like to achieve that first. Uh, if we can get 20 member businesses in the first year, I'd be stoked. But but I'm I think we could kill that and throw and blow that out of the water. And in five years, hopefully, five ten years, hopefully we're having conversations like like one percent of the planet's having now, where where we've just had a major impact on conservation. Yeah, that that that's awesome. How do you feel? How does this make you feel? You had this idea, you actually took action on it, and now you're sitting here talking about this organization that's launched and that's actually starting to do something that could be really huge and impactful. What does it feel like to be saying these words now that it's actually real? <laughs> well, I'm I'm stoked for the opportunity and to be in the place where we can be talking about it <laughs> because there's <laughs> been there's been two years of of just behind the scenes work and so the fun. You know, this is the fun part to me now to to actually get it out and get the word out there and promote it. But uh, to be completely honest, I, I don't have a lot of confidence yet just because that's my <laughs> nature. <laughs> I know we have a strong model. Uh, I, I know there's everything, all the pieces are there to make it successful. But but there's a lot of work to do, man. We got we have a lot of work to do to to make it till we can actually say this has been this has been successful. But but I feel super excited and uh, to be at this point now, uh, talking to to you and getting the word out to to the world uh, about what we're trying to do because it's it's been a long road coming of of just kind of behind the scenes stuff getting our, our ducks in a row. Yeah, I, I cannot imagine all the work that's taken to get to this point and and how much more there is to go too. But it's uh, it's inspiring to me to hear someone like you. Um, to go out and do something like this. It's, uh, it's encouraging and it's, it's great to know that there are people out there who care as much as, as you do and who are willing to, to invest so much of their time and energy into it. And I know there's a lot of people other than you doing, doing similar things. And I think the more we can grow that, that family of people that care enough to give back, I think it's just going to continue to be, continue to be incredibly important and, and fruitful. So for people out there that, have have wanted to get involved in one way or another with some kind of organization that want to get back or who want maybe they've had an idea for their own organization or they wanted to get involved with their whatever another organization out there do you have any advice for people out there that feel like they have this calling to give back because of how much hunting and or fishing has given to them what what would you tell people out there yeah i mean just do it um don't don't be afraid to fail, don't be afraid to try things. Um, uh, you know, if if you truly, specifically like this situation, have an idea of, of an organization or a cause or an event or or anything that you think can make an impact, you know, consult with uh, with people you respect and that are knowledgeable and and, and try it, make it happen. Um, you know, don't 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 be afraid just to get your toes in the water and and dive in and do it. Um, when it comes to specific volunteerism, you know, one thing that ha- has been a surprise to me over the last uh, over the last couple of weeks of getting this thing off the ground is, is how many people have emailed about our individual certifications, saying, uh, "Man, I I'm a member of all these different organizations, super passionate about conservation, but in my particular area, I just don't necess- I don't know of any volunteer opportunities." Um, and a lot, and most of these people have come from there they live in the midwest or the east coast i think we're fortunate we take it for granted out west where there's so much public land and so much wildlife that that it's just more abundant to have volunteer opportunities so 
I guess where I'm going with that is, is if you live in one of those areas and you do know of volunteer opportunities, um, spread the word and, and get the word out there. Cause I don't have an answer to that. That's been one of the surprises to me. The questions that have come up, people have emailed saying, how do you know, what can I do to get involved? And I'm like, shoot, man, I, I don't know of anything in Wisconsin, any volunteer opportunities. Let me, let me ask my resources, to try to figure out or find out what I could do. But, but, um, but try to network with with people that are like minded like you and and help uh, help facilitate you know getting people involved that are ready to do it but don't know how. Awesome advice, and I think you make a great point. There probably are a lot of people out there who who want to do something but don't necessarily know where the options are. So to your point, you know, work with your network, ask around. There probably are a lot more opportunities than we know about. <laughs> They're just not well marketed, I suppose, and put out there. So if you do know, I think share. so. Yeah, that's that's yep. a great point. Great point. So, man, this is uh, this is exciting stuff, Jeff. And as excited as I am, I know you are probably equally excited and terrified for your upcoming trip to Alaska, chasing coastal brown bears. And I should let you go and prepare for that. So, so Jeff, thank you so much for for a you know putting your time, energy, and money into into doing something like this. And then secondly, thank you for taking the time to chat with us about it and, uh, and spreading the word. Yeah. Thank, thank you very much for, uh, for the opportunity to, uh, to get the word out there through your platforms, man. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate your support. I think, uh, I think your idea and, and your call out to get people to email the companies that, that they care about. I think that's awesome. I hope, uh, I hope all you listening do do that. Yes, absolutely. Again, every one of you, please email at least one company, just one with a link to 2% for Conservation and tell them that you think this is something they should get involved in and why it matters to you. And Jeff, what's that URL again? Uh, it is fishandwildlife.org. Perfect. And they can find you, I and imagine, on Facebook as well? Yeah, Facebook is uh, yeah, there's 2% for Conservation. Instagram is, uh, we don't have a lot on there yet, but we're going to get moving on an Instagram strategy and that'll be 2% for conservation as well. But yeah, the website is the best resource now and that's uh, fishandwildlife.org. Awesome. Well, we will have a link to that on Wired Hunt as well. And Jeff, I guess until next time, we'll check back in in a few years and hopefully you'll have some great success stories to tell us about the great things that the organizations participating in 2% for Conservation have been able to do, and uh, hopefully you'll have a great bear hunting story to share, too. <laughs> Heck yeah, man. I hope so. I, I appreciate it, Mark. Thank you very much. All right. You're welcome. Have a good one, Jeff. Talk to you later. So awesome stuff there, don't you think? As you could probably tell, I'm very excited about 2% and the impact I think it can have in the future, and I hope you are, too. That said, a few things before we wrap things up. First off, last week we announced a special giveaway in celebration of our 100th episode. And today, right now, we're going to announce the winners. So, our first prize coming from Sick Gear, who is giving away a full early season system that includes an Equinox jacket and pant, their core lightweight long sleeve and bottom, and their hanger gloves and a ball cap, I believe. The winner of the Sick Gear early season system is Brian do close. Brian, do close. You are the big winner. Congrats, man. Next, we have a prize package from Ozonics, who's giving away one of their new dry wash bags and their kinetic backpack. Two awesome accessories there for your Ozonics machine. The winner of that is Dan Spano. Dan Spano or Spano, you are the winner of the Ozonics prize package. Next, we've got 
a $50 gift card and t-shirt from Huntera Maps. The winner of that is Wes Cisco. Wes Cisco, you've won the Huntera gift card and t-shirt. And finally, Carbon Express has given away a package of their Maxima Red Arrows. And the winner of that is Greg Chris- Christoffel. Greg Christoffel, you are the winner of the Carbon Express Maxima Red Arrows. I will reach out to all of you guys via Facebook and connect with you to make sure you can get those prizes right away. Thanks for participating, and thank you to all of you who went out there and commented and shared on our 100th episode on Facebook. I hope you enjoyed that episode, and we certainly appreciate you tuning in for it. So with that taken care of, we do now also need to thank our partners who helped make this podcast possible. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, thank you all for joining us. I hope you were inspired by today's conversation. And don't forget to send that email to your favorite company about 2% for conservation. And finally, until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.